James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. If you take your bullets and you glance at the passage. Uh, so we're at the very end of our three-month sermon series through the letter, uh, uh, the epistle of James. You'll see he doesn't end his book in kind of the customary New Testament fashion. Um, there's no great doxology of praise to the Father, Son, and Spirit at the end of the letter. Neither does he end it the way that Paul ends a lot of his letters, by giving greetings to individual members within the congregation. But you would, reading this, you'd say it's abrupt, it's blunt, and it's exceedingly practical. Kind of like the, the entirety of his book. It reminds me of the ending of the first... First John, the first epistle of John, where it just stops, it stops by saying, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's it. Just bing, it's over. This has that same kind of feel to it. Um, why don't we read it out loud together? Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is not rocket science. Um, This is something much, much harder than rocket science. And it's one of the most important things you will ever do in your Christian life. Here's the thesis, and it's a very uh, straightforward one. My thesis is this, that when a Christian brother or sister, um, when a Christian brother or sister begins to stray from the Lord, it is our responsibility to be shepherds. It's not simply the pastor's responsibility. It's our responsibility to be a community of shepherds. To go out to the one who is, who is wayward and to try and bring them back. Um, all of us are sheep. All of us are lambs of God. And yet I really believe this. I truly believe this. That there will be a time in your Christian life when you are called to go and be a good shepherd. To leave the 99 behind and to go to retrieve the straying and lost one. I've done the calculations. In a, my, a typical 30-minute sermon for me, I speak about 4,000 words, give or take a few. When you're listening to 4,000 words, a lot of those, I mean, we just can't process all of that. They go in through one ear and out the other. But if I could just please get you to process that statement, you will be called at some point, to rescue someone from death. See, the Bible speaks about three different kinds of death. There's physical death, of course, when the soul is separated from the body. There is spiritual death when uh, the soul is separated from God because of sin. And then there's this third kind of death. It's the most serious death. It's called the second death or eternal death, which is the separation of the body and the soul from God forever. It's the second death that Jesus Christ calls Gehenna. He says it's, it's hell. There's some time, there's going to be a time in your life when you are called to go and rescue somebody from 
from eternal death. And the question is, friends, the question is, will you have the courage to do it? Will you have the courage to step up and do this most uncomfortable and difficult thing? I want to remind you that... uh, I want to remind you what Jesus says. The basic, he says that everybody is traveling down a road. There, the, this path of life, it's bifurcated. Um, some are on the way towards life, and others on the, are on their way towards death. That may seem frustratingly binary to us, to make it so black and white. But that's not just simply how James spoke. That's how Jesus spoke. He said there are two roads One is broad and wide, many are on it, and it leads to destruction. And the other, he says, is narrow, and only a few find it, and it leads to life. I I beg you this morning, I'm trying not to be histrionic, but I beg you to remember the words of James earlier in the book where he says, we must not be merely hearers of the word, we must be doers of the word. Of the word. And I do believe that this sermon is directed to somebody specifically, and maybe many people specifically here today. You have got to be a shepherd. Point number one, because that's an essential part of Christian friendship. Being a shepherd who saves is an essential part of Christian friendship. One of the books that C.S. Lewis wrote was the book entitled Four Loves. The Four Loves. It was an exploration of the nature of love from a Christian and philosophical perspective. At the end of his chapter in that book on friendship, he writes something, everything Lewis writes is insightful, but this one struck me as especially insightful. He said, quote, We think that we have chosen our friends, but in reality, a few years difference in dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any one of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. He says this, he says, a secret master of ceremonies has been hard at work behind the scenes. Christ, who said to his disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you. I have chosen you for one another. What's the name of your best friend? (laughs) He says, I've chosen you for her, and vice versa, her for you. I've chosen him for you. I mean, part of that choosing is the choosing of sharing life together. We play, we sing, we, we laugh, we cry, we, do, we share life together. But part of that choosing, it, it's, it's a choosing of keeping. We keep each other. Remember the haunting question that... Cain spoke to God when, uh, all the way back at the beginning of Genesis. He says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer was, absolutely yes. You are your brother's keeper. And one of the things that this means then, if Jesus has chosen us for our friends and our friends for us, it means this. It means that if ever a time 
comes to pass when a search and rescue party is needed to go find them, then you have already said, I'm in. You have already said, I'm in. Because that's what it means to be a friend. Jesus has chosen you for each other so that you would like, be each other's safety net and keeper. And if one of you strays off into the pathway of death, then you would be the one to go and risk your neck in order to rescue them. So yes, I'm in. Friendship sometimes means that we get to save each other. Isn't that amazing? Here's another thought I had about so-called search and rescue missions, and that is, at least in my experience, normally if you have a child who grew up in the church, in the faith, and then later on they go on, they stray away from the faith, they turn their back on God. Normally, in that case, when a search and rescue mission is necessary, normally it's not the parents whom God chooses to go. Have you noticed that? Parents don't usually do a great job of recapturing their own kids. It's normally a friend. Or it's a brother and sister, a biological brother and sister, who are acting as a friend. Very noteworthy. When you get to the parable of the prodigal son, and the, the, the lost son is out in the wilderness, and he's living in the pig pen, it was not the responsibility of the father to go out after the son. It was the responsibility of the, of the elder brother to go out and be a friend to the younger brother. And did he? This is an essential part of Christian friendship. That's what Jesus signed you up for when he chose you for each other. Point number two. Being a shepherd friend, as I've just described, being a shepherd friend is very scary. Do you know why it's so scary? There are four key words in the passage here uh, that make it so scary. So it says here in verse 19 that a person who is straying is straying from the truth. The The person who is straying from the truth is called a sinner, and their sin is described as error, And their error means that they are not going along God's way, but they are going along their own way. So there's our four words. Truth, sinner, error, way. No matter how diplomatically you try to point that out to another person, it's likely it's not going to go very well. That's not going to be a great conversation. Because people, people who are straying, and error from the way, they resist so hard, that being pointed out. To have to go to someone and say, friend, you're an error, you're straying from the truth, you're on your way, not God's way, that is, it's not just an ordinary confrontation, we would call that a spiritual confrontation. Spiritual confrontations, in my opinion, are even harder than circumstantial confrontations, because spiritual confrontations are talking about what really matters in this life. And when people are spiritually confronted, oh man, you, it's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy. We get these kitschy pictures of Jesus in the Christian bookstore where he's got the lamb swung over on his shoulders and he's the good shepherd taking it back to the the flock. But it just doesn't work that way. 
If you have ever tried to hunt down a lost sheep, you know it's like, it's like hunting a wolverine. <laughs> You're tussling with an animal with claws and fangs. They will lash back at you and, and bite you. And what I found is this. It's directly proportional, actually. The farther a person strays away from the truth, the better they are at pointing the finger back at you and saying, you're the one who's wrong. You're being judgmental. You have no idea what you're talking about. Keep your nose out of my business. Hey, you remember the time you did such and such? The further they've strayed away from the truth, the more they will insist that they are right and you are not. Those conversations, they hurt. The reason the kitschy picture of Jesus, the good shepherd, is a lie is because shepherds always come home bruised and bloodied when they, when they seek for a sheep. And this is just the nature of us. Um, you can think back. Can all of us think back to a time when we were teenagers and we got caught by our parents doing something really bad? And when they went to confront us about that, we, we were awful to them in return. When they came to confront us, we let them have it with a double-barreled shotgun. We made sure that when they left our bedroom that evening, they felt every bit as miserable as we did. You know, sinners hate to be caught, and they lash out at the people who confront them. There's also a very good chance, uh, the reason this is scary, there's a very good chance that you'll either be misunderstood or you'll be slandered as a result of this. One of the things we do as humans is we triangulate. Whenever we, got, we have a problem between Mr. Brown and Mr. Smith, and they come together, well, the way that Mr. Smith can kind of triumph over Mr. Brown is he goes out and gets Mrs. Jenkins and tells Mrs. Jenkins all the things, the terrible things that Mr. Brown said to him and the unloving tone. And, and what we do is we triangulate. We get somebody else on our side. And yeah, if you go and confront a sinner, you're, you're, likely, you're likely to be slandered. You're likely to lose friends. It's scary. And that's why nine times out of, a t- out of ten, when we are faced with a situation like this, what do we do? We say, I don't want to get involved. I, I don't want to get involved. Um, it's so much easier to hide behind all of the excuses that I can make why I shouldn't get involved. That's what we do nine times out of ten. But I just want to, I tried to give the positive point in the first one. The reason you should go is because Jesus called you to be friends. I'll give you the negative and sharp point right now. Very often in the Old Testament, when God would come to a prophet, and this happened with the prophet Ezekiel. He said, Ezekiel, I got a, a message that I want you to speak to the people, a message of correction. You are to speak this message faithfully to the people. If you fail to correct these people, to go to them and speak this message, then their blood will be on your head. God declares to Ezekiel and to the prophets the grim consequences of failing to warn a sinner, saying he holds his messengers accountable for the knowledge that they have. And our excuses about how 
Oh, uh, uh, you can think of your own excuses. You know them. But are we really going to tell those back to God on the last day and, and expect that they'll pass muster? Point number three, uh, how do we go? What's the spirit we should go after um, straying sheep? Here's what I came up with. I said, uh, I said the rescue mission it's only for those. <laughs> it's only for those who sing the third verse of "Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing" and mean it truly from their hearts. What is the third verse of "Come Thou Fount"? Uh, that's the one where it says, "Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love." This search and rescue mission is only for people who who really know their own propensity for, of a wandering heart. Um, the other thing you say in that psalm is it says, you say, take my heart, Lord, and bind it like a fetter. Uh, what's the fetter? A fetter is an old English word for steel chain. <laughs> you say, Lord, I know my heart is ever so wandering that unless you chain it to yourself, um, I will be the one straying far off into the far country I will be the one drinking from brackish water and eating poisonous plants. You got to sing that and mean it in order to go. You see, if you see someone who is caught in a sin and somehow think either you're made of better stuff than they are, if you feel superior to them in any way, if you feel like I'd never be capable of anything like that, then you shouldn't go. You're not qualified for this mission. And if you go, it'll just make things worse. Only the thoroughly humble in heart uh, are ready to be shepherds. I was reading an author this week uh, who, was, who told a story of his next door neighbor, friend, a boy. I lived right next door to him. And growing up, the boy had some kind of a condition where his bones would come out of joint. So if they were wrestling or playing together, suddenly the boy would start to scream because the bone had popped out of joint. The author continues, because this was something that was a chronic condition, his father was particularly good at fixing it. When the father would hear the son scream, he would come running out of the house, and with his right hand, he would take the kid's elbow, and with his left hand, he would put it on his shoulder, and then pop! The popping was so terrible to hear. But here's what I noticed every time it happened. The boy would be screaming, and then to snap it back into joint, the boy would be really screaming, and then he would be smiling. See, the only way to get from screaming to smiling was to really scream, because the only way you could possibly get him out of the pain of dislocation was the greater pain of relocation. When you go to a person... Who, who is strayed, you have to go with the expectation, um, with the willingness to kiss your relationship goodbye. You have to go expect, being willing to kiss your relationship to go, goodbye because uh, what you will be doing in that meeting, uh, spiritual confrontation, no matter how diplomatic, no matter how, how, how uh, kind, no matter how loving, it is painful to be on the other end, the receiving end of it. It is so painful to have somebody come to you and, and say this 
and, and call you to turn away, to turn away from an affair, to turn away from an addiction, to turn away from a hidden uh, th- part of your life. I mean, to turn away from those kinds of things, it feels like, it feels like your life is going to end. It's so painful. But in, uh, so in Galatians, at the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he actually talks about the same situation. He says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, that if some one of you is caught in a sin, then you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And the very Greek word there for restore is literally the word which means to pop, to pop a bone back into place. So in order... In order for somebody to be restored, they have to, you have to inflict the healing of pain upon them. It's the pain of surgery. It's the pain of having a tooth removed. It's a pain that will make the other person howl and protest, and it will probably make them be like, I don't want to ever talk to you again. It must be done gently, and it must be done with a humbled heart. And you must have the courage, friends, to do it. In 1935, the movie The Bride of Frankenstein, which was the sequel to Frankenstein, uh, came out. Boris, Boris Karloff and, and all of that. Uh, f- there's a famous scene in the, in the film where the monster finds a cottage in the middle of the forest with a blind man living in it. When the blind man comes to the door, all he can hear is the monster growling. But the blind man can't see the monster, so he assumes that the person outside his door is simply a a mute individual, somebody who's mute and unable to speak. So he basically says, he's not afraid at all, he says, um, are you afflicted as I am? I cannot see, and you cannot speak. Perhaps we could help each other. (laughs) Yes, we could be friends. So only minutes before Frankenstein comes to the door, This blind man was on his knees praying, Oh God, please bring me a friend to alleviate my terrible loneliness. So Frankenstein and the blind man, um, two afflicted souls, over the next several days, I'm assuming, they become friends. They do chores together. They eat together. The movie shows the monster beginning to learn to speak. and He begins to say things like food and good and friend. Probably it's the only place in any Boris Karloff movie where the monster begins to smile. He smiles here. And if we were to stop the movie at that point, you'd say, well, we got a happy ending. This is, this is great. But it's a horror flick, so um, it doesn't end there. As you might imagine, the hunters come through the woods. They peer through the window of the cottage, and all they can see is a monster inside. So they attack the cottage, and the cottage burns to the ground, The blind man dies, the hunters die, and the very last scene, at least I think it's of this section, is of the monster groping off into the forest, crying loud, friend, friend. One afflicted soul searching for another afflicted soul. Now, if you got that working for you, (laughs) if that's the spirit, then you're ready to go. I'd like to finish the sermon by addressing several specific groups of people. Um, James is, is a very practical book, as we've been saying, and I said at the beginning of this sermon series that James is the New Testament wisdom book, so it's kind of the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. I thought it was only appropriate to finish the book and to finish the series 
by giving just very practical, direct, and blunt instructions to several groups of people here. So first of all, um, I really believe that some of you are called to shepherd, some of you are called to shepherd someone out of death through preventative measures. Like one of the biggest problems we have is that we, we wait too long to go to people. We have these concerns about their spiritual life. We have our intuition tells us that, okay, something's not right here. We get a little nervous, but usually we keep those concerns to ourselves, don't we? We don't speak about them to the other person. It's a whole lot easier to bring a, a straying sheep when they're only 10 feet off the road than when they're 10,000 miles. We don't go to them early enough and articulate those concerns early enough. And so I, I just want to encourage you, if, if, I, if I'm possibly talking to you this morning and you have a person in mind, a name and a face, would you please use this sermon as even an excuse to do so? You can go to them and you can say, my pastor preached a sermon on this on Sunday and um, I... I felt very convicted by the Holy Spirit that I needed to come and say something to you. I don't know all the details, but I just, I know these, I have concerns, real concerns. Please don't receive it defensively. These are the wounds of a friend I'm trying to deliver to you. So some of you need to do that. Secondly, I know that there's some of us who, you read this passage, you've heard the sermon, you think, you feel terrible because you chickened out in the past. You can think of the person right now. You see their, their face. The person you should have gone to. And you didn't because you were afraid. Because of your cowardice. Or because of your laziness. You hid behind your excuses. And, and now maybe the relationship is distant. And, but whatever was the reason, you didn't go. Could, could I nudge you? to reconsider, to ask yourself this question. Is it too late? Is it really too late for me to go? Is it really too late for me to go? This is the Savior's heart. In Luke chapter 15, we get those three parables. The parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. Parable of lost coin, lady's losing a coin, she turns the house upside down in order to find it. Parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd leaves the, the 99. He goes after the 1% of the herd. And he goes over hill and byway and everywhere in order to get that. The parable of the lost son. Who goes in the parable of the lost son? Nobody goes. And you have lived out that parable. You've been the elder brother who hasn't gone. What I'm going to say to you is, is God may be giving you a second chance today. He really may. Are you sure it's too late? I'd encourage you so much to pray, Lord, I am sorry, and I ask you to forgive me, and can I have another another opportunity? Recognizing that our Savior is a Savior who seeks. Lord, can I be the shepherd who goes, give me another chance? Thirdly, um, maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're one of the sheep that strayed. Or somehow, maybe you stumbled onto the sermon on the internet and you're listening to it. Uh, and you know that you're the sheep that strayed. 
Will you, well, all of us, let's look at verse 20, because this is the word to the person who is strayed. It's the word that's actually demonstrated for us in the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. When the, the lost son comes to his senses, he's wasted all of his father's money on prostitutes and liquor and all of it. But it says he came to his senses and he returns to his father. And the father's response is not, well, remember this that you did against me and this you did against me. He does not go through and catalog all the sins of the lost son. He covers them. He wipes them clean. And that is what, exactly what James is talking about in verse 20. It says, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from eternal death and cover over, cover over a multitude of sins. In other words, all the sins that you've committed as a dumb sheep, the father, they're covered. He doesn't see it. They're under the blood of Christ. He will take you back. He will take you back. Shelton sent me um, an email this week. One of our friends who is a, a great preacher in Wales, the Welsh preacher, Jeff Thomas. He's at Aberystwyth uh, First Baptist. And um, he's been preaching for like 65 years. Amazing guy. He wrote, uh, he buried his wife, I think, in the last six months. And he was having to consider, all right, um, what am I going to put on my tombstone What do I want written on my tombstone? Have you already thought of what you want written on your tombstone? Well, he he was, this is what he came up with. God created me. Sin ruined me. Grace restored me. God wishes to restore you. Uh, I'll conclude with this. I just hope, church, I hope that God will make us a community of shepherds. This is such a hard thing to do. And I'm not a very good one of them. I don't do it very well. Um, But I hope you realize this is the most noble and beautiful thing a human soul could ever do. We all want, I think we all want to be used by God to lead a person who is not a believer into a saving relationship with with Jesus. We call that evangelism. All of us want to be to be used by God to save someone like that. Don't you see? This is the same work. This is the same glory and nobility to save a sinner from the error of their waves uh, by going after them like a good shepherd. Remember what Jesus said. I tell you that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who is saved than over 99 sinners who didn't need to repent. This is what our Savior rejoices over. Uh, And this is what he wants us to become. He wants us to become a community of shepherds. Amen.